Welcome back to Microdigressions. This is Spencer Case. One thing we might worry about is whether there are ideas that are too dangerous to be talked about or that are threatening to society in some way. And this filters into another topic we've talked about on this podcast, which is, is cancel culture and attempts to deplatform or otherwise make strong social or professional pressures to prevent someone from speaking. So along with that controversy in philosophy, there's this journal called the Journal of Controversial Ideas, which allows philosophers to publish papers under pseudonyms to protect them from certain sorts of professional reprisals. And here to discuss that with me today is one of the co-editors, Francesca Minerva. Am I saying that correctly? Francesca Minerva, yeah. Um, along with Peter Singer and Jeff McMahon. So we did this really on the fly. I was going to interview uh, Francesca for an article I'm writing, and I decided, why not? Let's make this an episode. Um, so, Francesca, could you tell me about your involvement about this? Like, when did you first come up with this idea? It was quite a few years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, I was sort of thinking about this um, about seven years ago, and um, I... I got in a lot of trouble for publishing a controversial paper in the Journal Medical Ethics. It was a paper on afterbirth abortion and uh, the, the status of newborns, the moral status of newborns. And um, that attracted a lot of um, attacks, both from uh, the general public and from other academics, but mostly from the general public, I would say. So I wasn't subject to any petition, uh, but um, I think petitions were really not much in fashion back then, but um, there were a lot of hostility also from other academics. Um, I mean, I was told that I couldn't get jobs uh, because of this controversy, uh, pretty much I was not hireable uh, because people didn't want me to have, uh, didn't want me in their department. So, and we got a lot of, my myself and my co-author had a lot of death threats and put um, lots of nasty comments on articles um, in newspapers and magazines online talking about this article. So that's, that made me think that there was a problem with academic freedom and that, uh, you know, when people receive lots of death threats, uh, they might get scared about publishing some academic articles because that was quite a new phenomenon. And uh, I hadn't heard of anyone uh, getting like so much media attention and so many death threats in such a small amount of time. I mean, I knew that Peter Singer and people working on climate change uh, had received death threats and attacks, but it seems there's like an explosion in a very short time um, that was triggered by all this media attention. Um, academics might worry about death threats and, you know, uh, job prospects. Um, so um, I wrote an article about this issue, um, whether uh, we should, uh, what we should we do with situation, maybe using pseudonyms for publications and um, I published this article in uh, bioethics then there were some replies and um, 
so the idea of this journal uh, or, or a forum or something where people could publish uh, using a pseudonym started developing and I started talking about it with Peter Singer and uh, and then with Jeff McMahon and um, and yeah and uh, we put together an editorial board with people supporting uh, this project uh, we had to find a publisher or a publishing system uh, we don't really have like a publisher it's more like a publishing platform um, that that wasn't easy because we tried a few different things but we wanted the journal to be open access and to be available for free to everyone so it was it was a bit complicated that's why it took so long um also like we were not working full-time on this project of course so it took a while and uh, one year ago uh we started um accepting submissions and after one year we published the first issue which is what we had planned because we had planned to publish one issue per year. Um, I don't know if we're going to publish maybe twice per year if we receive um, enough good submissions, but the idea is that once we have this number, uh, like this time we publish like 10 papers, uh, the first issue of papers we think we're, we're publishable and uh, pass the review, uh, then, then we publish an issue. Well, that answers actually a couple of my my, my first couple of questions, which is why why did it take so long, and how regularly will the journal release issues? Um, so it looks like the second one's still being worked out. Is, is that right? Yes, I think we will go. I mean, it depends a lot on the submissions, um, of course. Like this is this is the main issue, so um, we, we didn't want to publish like each paper when uh, one by one or. Uh, to have an issue like three papers. So without, you know, we, we want to publish something more substantial. And of course, we don't have control on the submissions. So it depends um, on how many receive and um, how the reviewers evaluate them. So we, we rejected a lot of papers, of course. And and eventually we said, okay, that's that 10 is a good number. We can, we can publish now. So the, the number, I think it, it was me- mentioned in the editorial by the by the editors at the beginning of the of this first issue that came out a few days ago that there was something like 90 submissions yeah if I, yeah i think that's correct um so i don't remember the exact number and then like we got a few more in the last couple of days uh but yeah i think it was about 90 submissions 10 we published uh 10 are still in limbo um like waiting for uh, some reviewers and the other ones were rejected either that's rejections or rejected after peer review huh so is that more or less than you were expecting as far as the number of submissions um i think i think that's uh well it was hard to wear so i didn't really have any expectations but uh i didn't expect like hundreds and hundreds of submissions of course um hopefully we won't get like hundreds and hundreds it would be difficult to process them all but um yeah, I think that um, it would be great to get a few more so that, you know, we can publish more often and um, um, maybe publish more papers with each issue. Um, but what matters to us is the paper we publish are, are good and, and pass peer review and we have quite a tough peer review process. And so, like, quality, it's the main thing for us over over quantity. So... Did you have any difficulty find, finding reviewers? 
Well, sometimes I do, um, but it's the first time I, I, I'm involved in a journal. So I don't know if this is common, but like for some papers, I have to try like 20 people uh, before I can find a reviewer. Uh, I don't know if other journals have the same problem. I guess some sometimes people uh, don't want to be involved with the journal, so they don't want to, to act as reviewers. It's also the fact that not all papers are philosophy papers. So sometimes, you know, it takes a while to to find reviewers on subjects that we're not experts on. So you have to go and read the literature and try to understand what the people who are capable of, or, or you need to ask um, help. So we have an editorial board um, with people from different disciplines that, that helps because then we can ask them to suggest reviewers for some papers that are not mainly philosophical or like in, in my area of expertise or Peters and Jeff's. But yeah, it's hard for me to compare and say, oh, you know, this is normal or yeah, everybody has to, to send a lot of invitations to review uh, because I've never uh, been on an editorial board or like a, an editor before. So I didn't realize that this is an interdisciplinary journal. Yeah, it is. It is the first issue uh, published philosophy papers uh, mostly, um, but we are open to uh, to all disciplines um, or any topic that's like relevance for society. So yeah, we have like submissions in uh, psychology as well. Um, so it uh, medicine. So it can can take a while. So I was wondering, like with this first issue, it seemed like there was a kind of balance or diversity of the topics that came out. Like there were, there was this one by Alex Byrne and there was also a response. It was about the, whether the word woman means adult, human, female. And then you had one on animal rights and you had, you know, various other topics. And I was wondering if there was a conscious effort to achieve balance, but it sounds like the first 10 papers that were good enough to publish, you just ran with those? Yes, we were not uh, really trying to aim for any balance. It just happened that these were the yeah the best submissions, the ones that passed peer review and that we also thought were uh, good papers. And But I think it, would, it came out quite nice. Um, so there is some, some balance, um, but it wasn't an attempt a conscious attempt at doing that. I am. I was curious about the one response paper. It was one of the ones that had a pseudonym. Uh, mm-hmm. That was a, a res, the response to burn. I was wondering, like how how that person could have known that paper was coming out. Yeah. So what happened is that we we sent uh, the burn paper out for review to this person, and uh, then she decided to write a response and to submit it um, to the journal. And and that's why, so the, the, her response is in part assessing, addressing the the first paper that Byrne published and in part the one he, the response to a response that he published in our journal. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and that's why she, she, had, she had access to uh, this manuscript that obviously had not been published uh, yet. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. So... I'm wondering if you've been able to gauge the reaction so far about people to of people to this first issue. 
Have you gotten a lot of emails, a lot of comments, anything that surprised you? Um, so I looked up on Twitter, uh, the reactions on Twitter um, a bit, but I think that the reactions from people on Twitter maybe were not completely representative of the general reaction. So uh, we had like a lot of emails, like of support, uh, just people emailing us that it's great. And um, and I saw that like when we shared on Twitter in the first journal, like, there were lots of likes and retweets. So there was general support. Um, some people uh, complained that the journal wasn't controversial enough. I thought that was quite a common reaction uh, on Twitter, uh, not via email or um, other forums. And uh, some people complaining it was too controversial, uh, but they were a minority. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not too surprised. I have to say, yes, the papers in this first issue were not extremely controversial, um, I guess. So um, that's uh, why maybe some people were uh, complaining about. But so we were not particularly surprised that it was going to be one type of comment. But yeah, no, I think I think that's kind of what what we expected overall. But I'm still... I try then to take some time out from Twitter and social media because it was kind of like too much. So there was the weekend in between and decided that I needed a little break. So I look at it for a while and then and I kind of forgot about it for for a bit. I had the reaction. I haven't read all of the papers, but I've read most of them. And one of the ones I didn't read, I saw at a conference a few years ago. And I sort of had the reaction that it wasn't quite as controversial as I was expecting. Like, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, maybe with one exception, I would have been completely unsurprised to see any of those papers appear in an ordinary philosophy journal. But maybe that's just me. Maybe maybe it would surprise other people. Like uh, the uh, the one about the permissibility of black facial paint in very narrow social contexts. I mean, that struck me honestly as kind of anodyne. I thought like, this is the kind of thing that almost everyone would have accepted 20 years ago. And now it's like too hot to touch. That does say something about the climate we're in. It does. And uh, in that paper you mentioned, there is a footnote by the author saying that this paper had initially been um, accepted, if I'm correct, uh, almost accepted by another journal, and then the editor changed their mind and um, and told the author that maybe this was not a good topic to to write on. So, and again, I think, but that's what we said when we started the journal, the bar for what is considered controversial has gone very, very low. Um, so people tend to react to things that 10 years ago, 20 years ago, would have not been controversial at all. And this journal is trying to get the bar a bit higher so that these papers can be published in in normal, like in, in standard journals again. Uh, and the idea was like, well, if the very controversial papers get published in our journal, at least some of the very controversial papers get published in our journal, then people get used to the idea of dealing with controversial papers 
and then the bar for other journal will be a bit higher. But I think that, yeah, some of these papers, if they had been published in standard journals, they would have raised quite a few reactions. So it's kind of interesting that people might complain that papers we published were not controversial enough, but I'm pretty sure that if the same paper had been published in another journal, they would have complained that they were too controversial. Uh, so it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of a difficult situation there. Um, just just to uh, dot the I and cross the T on the point that you were making a minute ago, in that footnote that you mentioned, the author didn't just say the paper had been given a conditional acceptance pending minor revisions, and then it was abruptly rejected. He also said that when that happened, it was in exactly the time frame when the the Black Lives Matter protests had spiked in the immediate aftermath of the death of George Floyd last year. And so, which lends more credence to the idea that this was a political cancellation, in effect, that was Possibly. being pulled on him. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's was his impression for sure. Now, I don't, I don't know what was the journal. Um, I know like, everything I know is from that, uh, that footnote. So I don't know what the journal was, or the situation exactly, but he felt, uh, I mean, he was told <laughs> that, you know, yeah. that was not a publishable article. And uh, is it an extremely controversial paper? No, I don't think it is. But if it can't get published in the other journals, then, you know, that's what we're here for. So to clarify, then, this, make, this suggests that there are two different roles that um, JCI is playing here. So one is is to protect people from cancellation, right, by allowing them to go use a pseudonym and not be subject to efforts to ruin their career reputation or things like that. And then the other is just to sort of expand on what ideas are out in the public sphere for us to hear and to be defended and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, because... If these papers don't get published, nobody will hear, hear about these ideas. And I think we think it's um, it's it's a problem because while some of these ideas are interesting and should be discussed, some of these ideas, uh, you know, are are wrong and um, and they need to be uh, to be discussed because people have to. Uh, show what's wrong with these ideas otherwise they don't get discussed and then you know you get situations where the conversation goes on underground um and and then people don't have feedback and it's uh, it's just um it just becomes this sort of like conversation among people who think alike and they don't get exposed to any counter argument and and then they become radicalized. So that's another important thing. Like people say, think that, oh, if we don't discuss controversial ideas, they're just going to disappear. That's that's not true. <laughs> that's not what happens. They just become more radicalized. And that's radicalization is is bad. So you know, philosophy should be should have all these nuances and counter arguments and conversation that you miss when you don't have a venue for that kind of conversation is the thought something like if you try to like suppress an idea that's deemed to be dangerous characteristic or paradigmatic example that gets thrown out is like group differences in iq if you have an environment where people suspect that the academics wouldn't tell them 
if the research came out in favor of a strong kind of hereditarianism, um, they're, what they're in, they're going to inadvertently just fuel more extremism in that direction. Because exactly. People, yeah, people will be suspicious that oh, you know, actually there must be huge group differences that are being concealed by these experts and that kind of thing. Yeah, and also like. We don't really know. Like, that's the thing that yeah, also was mentioned in, during Sam Harris' interview. Like, we don't have enough data and we don't know. You know, maybe these group differences don't exist. Uh, maybe they're reversed. It's hard to tell because the data we have, it's it's just bad. It's it's not sufficient. Uh, you know, uh, this is not my area of expertise, but... I'm, I'm told that, you know, we, we don't have enough data and we shouldn't collect more data. And But that's the opposite of what I would think. We don't have enough data, but why shouldn't we try to figure out if there is some something to these ideas or, you know, maybe we find out there isn't. So we're having all this conversation, the fear around this conversation without even having sufficient data for it. Yeah, I don't know what to think about this whole controversy either except that it does seem to me that people are unreasonably afraid of open-mindedness in this area like like what do people think would happen if it turned out that there were some group differences like we would i i don't know what we could we could not defend the notion of human rights or or what i just don't think that there's as much at stake here as people seem to believe i agree like I was recently made aware of the fact that there are some studies suggesting that people from the south of Italy, which is where I come from, um, have a lower IQ compared to people from the north of Italy. We don't know. Like it is, some studies were conducted suggesting this. And I don't, as a person from the south of Italy, I, I didn't feel offended or threatened or alarmed by this study. Um, you know, um, I think they're probably flawed that you know the, that we should have better data but I, I don't think that even if it was the case if it were the case that people from the north of Italy have a higher IQ than people from the southern of Italy that would be a threat to my human rights or say anything about me as an individual and this did come up in the very first paper that compared. I was on uh, yeah. cognitive creationism. I, for, I forget who the author was, but it wasn't a pseudonymed one. But it, it is a pseudonym, a, yeah. It is a pseudonym. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I and I don't know who the author is, so I only know the pseudonym. So I'm, oh, okay, okay. Um, but it just it's occurred to me a number of times, and again, I, I truly don't know. It's not, it's not a question that's in my field, but we're comfortable with the idea of there being within groups, there's cognitive variation. Nobody thinks that that explodes the whole notion of human dignity or undermines morality or undermines political equality in some sense that we, we generally care about. It seems like that is just sort of um, doesn't seem to threaten anyone, but then group differences it's like the universe comes to an end if if that were to if that were to be proven, and I, I don't understand really why the reaction is as terrified as it is. I'm 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 kind of baffled by it. Yeah, no, me me too, and and I say that 
as a member of a group they're supposed to be part of the group with a lower IQ. Uh, so, and you know, we have major, major conflicts between the North and the South of Italy. And they're very, very recent. Uh, when I was like two year old until the age of seven, my family lived in the North of Italy. This was in the eighties. And, uh, you know, uh, there were some places that were not like finding a place to rent was difficult for people from the South. You couldn't access some places. So there was like active discrimination against people from the South. They were poorer and, you know, considered, um, inferior in a way. And, um, so like I, I have that experience of, you know, being told, sorry, you can't come here because you're a southerner. So I was small. So it, it's, and yet people, you know, may say, oh, well, so if there were some data showing that there is a standard deviation IQ difference between people from the north and the south of Italy, that would bring back or make even worse that kind of difference. But um, I'm not, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced it would be the case. I think as a society, we just, over that, uh, you know, there is no discrimination against people in from the south of Italy anymore, and I think we have just understood that <laughs> that that's a silly thing, and and we're moved on. So I don't know, but maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm too optimistic. I don't know. Anyway, um, I I personally don't don't feel worried about this thing that could could affect me as member of this group. You know, it's curious to me that the things that scare people the most, that that seem the most third railish, so group differences is one, questioning trans identities is another one. Like, those are like probably the two, I don't know, would you think that's fair, like the most charged identity politics sorts of issues? Like, if we're talking about dangerous ideas or ideas that would be deemed dangerous or would be deemed cancelable, those are like the two. Yeah, I think that's true. At the moment, that's that's definitely the case. Um, those are but, the. Yeah, but you think about you think about other issues might be way more consequential. I mean, abortion is very consequential, and it is hot. It is a, like a intense topic. You experienced that, but I, I think from from within academia, it doesn't seem quite as charged as those issues that touch on like racial or gender identity. Yeah. And um, to be honest, I'm not sure why. And, you know, I've been around academia for a while now. I don't know how this happened. Uh, (laughs) I, I just don't know. It was pretty different 10 years ago, but I would say, I mean, up to five years ago, I mean, we were not having all these conversations on, on genders and things like that, we were just, you know, and I'm not saying that they're not, they're not interesting. I think they're interesting conversations, but it would be more interesting if we could have actually a conversation instead of a war. Uh, and it feels more like it's a, it's just a conflict or like things you can't, like you can't, you can't discuss. And, um, this phenomenon itself, in itself, is really interesting. Like, why have we got to the conclusion that we can't discuss some things? And, but, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know why it is these two topics in particular. I don't know. Just to expand on that, 
I think I have a general idea of what happened with the race one, which is that the uh, educated segment of, of the U.S. and I think other educated or excuse me, other Western countries, they sort of in the middle of the 20th century were reacting against racism and sexism uh, but particularly racism, as it had been instantiated in that particular context. So white racism against non-whites. And that sort of became part of a, their sort of practical or political identity. So they identified with opposition to racism and identified, saw like undermining negative stereotypes of outgroups as a, a project. I mean, uh, even maybe a spiritual project of a, of a kind. And so I just think it, it became to be felt with a certain amount of intensity. And I think what happens is people will react with, with extreme personal revulsion to anything that they see as bolstering those stereotypes. And then the prediction of harm is kind of ad hoc. I think it's really that feeling of personal revulsion that gives them the idea that those ideas are especially harmful. Because when you think about it, there are all sorts of other views someone could be wrong about that could be way more harmful. I mean, you defend the wrong view about free trade or something, and that becomes influential with a powerful group of people and you could harm the economy. You could lead to suicides and drug overdoses and things, but it doesn't, that doesn't generate the, the, the feeling mm. it's, it's rather people have, people have these political identities and that, and then they sort of say that it's the consequences they're concerned about. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's also like very weird for me. Like, again, like why would, why do people identify so strongly with some things? Like, I don't identify strongly with, I try to understand because like, I honestly don't identify strongly with any of these characteristics. Like, I don't think, oh my God, I'm a woman. That's part of my identity. I honestly don't care. That's not something like, you know, I I think about, um, or, you know, I don't identify as it, Italian or or Mediterranean anything it's it's this idea that you know some characteristics that you accidentally happen to have um identify you um that's uh, yeah that's interesting it's not something i feel i can understand i think it's maybe more of an american thing maybe that's a different it seems like this identity politics originated more in um in, in the US and then it has been exported but as it's been exported it's more difficult for people who don't come from that culture to to understand it uh, I mean I, I don't know but like when I think about things I identify with it's things I choose to I chose to be identify as a vegetarian identify as a consequentialist um, identify as you know things that I have become and I want to be but you know, my sex, my gender, my other things that I was just born with don't identify me. Like I, I, I don't care about them, but people seem to care a lot about it. And 
that's that that's that's interesting and it causes this phenomenon that you mentioned but i guess it's 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 uh, somehow hard to understand how these would you know would become so so important when we don't have any influence on it and I, um, I don't know. I'm still, I'm still puzzled. I mean, I'm not saying there is anything wrong about caring so much about these things. I'm just saying that I, um, I find it interesting because I don't share that intuition. So at a deeper level, um, it's, it's, it's something that surprises me. I don't know. Um, I don't know if it's common, but. Yeah, you know, if I had to describe myself with a few things, you know, woman or Italian wouldn't be in the top ten. <laughs> and but maybe and but maybe that's what people think when they look at me and that always surprises me. It's, yeah. I did want to ask you about this one sort of objection to the project that I know you've heard before, but I wanted to follow up on it. And this is the objection that there needs to be some kind of accountability for what people say that it's somehow damaging to the community of scholars that people will say things and we don't know who it is or whether or not they're saying it sincerely. And now just to take this up a notch or something or add another thing to it, I am in the middle of reading um, the article uh, that defends, it defends the right of people to say stupid things on campuses. It's the, one of the last ones, maybe the last article in the mm, issue. Yeah. Uh, so that one, I was reading that, and I and there's this quote from John Stuart Mill where he's res- this author is responding to, well, hey, why don't we just get non-flat earthers to give flat earth arguments? And Mill's response is to say, well, it's not the same thing if you don't know that you're hearing it from a true believer. You know, and so what I was thinking when I read that was, but isn't this part of the argument against pseudonyms, right? Like if, if you don't know who the person is, you don't know that they're saying it in good faith. Um, yeah, I think in, in, in a, you know, in an ideal world, uh, we wouldn't need pseudonyms, but we live in this world, which is far from ideal and, um, overall, I think the world it's better if the arguments are out with a pseudonym rather than if they're not out at all. I strongly believe that, you know, it shouldn't matter where the argument comes from. Um, what matters is the argument in itself. If it's strong enough, um, what, you know, how it is developed. And maybe, yeah, some people would take it more seriously if they knew where it came from, was the person... But on the other hand, you know, we don't, sometimes that can go against it. Um, Like I heard a lot of times, like, you know, men shouldn't talk about abortion because they don't experience abortion and, you know, they don't have a uterus. But, you know, some excellent articles on abortion were written by men. The arguments are excellent and I learned a lot reading them. If, if we, you know, if these articles had been excluded from the literature just because you know the person in question was a man and so unable to experience um the pregnancy and the abortion themselves uh we would have lost 
you know, a lot of interesting argument, a lot of interesting conversations. So the identity of the person shouldn't be an obstacle to to discuss a certain a certain argument. Uh, if you know arguments are completely detached from from people. Uh, and again, like when I write something, I don't write as a woman. I don't write as an Italian. I write as a consequentialist philosopher, and that's all that matters. And people shouldn't care about who I am, how I look, how old I am, my gender. Um, that's not their business. And in many cases, I think it has been a distraction. Like when we got in trouble for that uh, afterward abortion paper, I think the fact that I was a woman really made things worse because it was like, oh, who is this woman who wants to kill babies? How is it possible? Like it felt more monstrous that a woman were saying these things because we were not supposed to do that. But again, like it doesn't matter. That's that's an argument. It could have come like my co-author is a male, it's a man. So, you know, that, that shouldn't have made any difference why they were more horrified by the fact that a woman was writing that and it's like in the case of our journal, we only know who one of the um, three uh, pseudonymous authors is because we sent her a request to review the paper. And the other two, I have no idea who they are, but I don't think it's made any difference in reading the papers, understanding the arguments in, you know, anything at all. Mm. So... So I agree with you about the bottom line about in an ideal world, we wouldn't need this. In the actual world, we need pseudonyms. But I do want to push back about who's giving the argument doesn't matter at all. I think it does arguably matter, at least sometimes. I think, for example, I was reading John Greco's book on skepticism called Putting Skeptics in Their Place, I think. And... He makes this point that we don't have to take skepticism seriously in a certain way because there are no real skeptics. He says it's okay to beg the question against the skeptic because the skeptic isn't a real person. There aren't really believing um, total skeptics out there. There are just these interesting arguments, and we know they have some false premises, one or more false premises. They're just really hard to identify and say what's wrong with them. And so that's how we should approach skeptical arguments because no one really believes them. And so no one really believes their, their conclusions that is. And so I thought, well, like, well, that's interesting. Um, because if somebody's arguing like Peter Singer, you know, his famine, affluence and morality, extremely demanding, you know, you have to give a huge amount of your, your income to help people who would otherwise starve, you know, this view students often want to want, uh, want to know, well, does he do that? Yuri Leibowitz has got a paper about this. Does the singer do that? And maybe there's a sense that you could say, well, if nobody really lives up to this, the person who takes this view is like the skeptic that John Greco dismisses, Right. Um, I'm at least open to thinking that there might be an important difference there that like somebody who's like, no, like I live this, this is my conviction. This isn't just a toy argument. You know, I'm serious about this. That might command a different kind of intellectual attention than something that's put forward as a, as a mere puzzle. 
Well, I guess that, yeah, it can have an effect in how, you know, um, people who read it, um, my, the way they read it. But again, like, I don't think you should make any particular difference. Like, the argument is out there. Do you agree with the argument? Do you think this argument is good? Then if the person who uh, put the argument out there uh, can't leave up to that expectation or like up to, you know, to the um, standard set up by this article or argument, that shouldn't make a difference. Again, it's, you know, when you read an article, you have, I mean, I think, <laughs> and we can disagree on this, what matters is the argument itself. And uh, in very often I read things, I don't know who wrote them. I don't, and I honestly don't care. I don't Google it up. I don't check. Uh, what I'm interested in is like, oh, to agree with this argument, is there something I disagree? What is it? And can I make a better argument? But for some people, they might be different and, uh, you know, they want to know if the person is is uh, is living coherently with that and, and if, you know, and they might not absorb or um, engage as much with the material if they don't know the person is and how the person is living. But I think that's something we should try to change about ourselves and to to really read an article um, for for what it is, like arguments and what it gives to us. I, I mean, it's kind of like we're not entirely what we write. You know, these are there are thoughts that that we have and arguments that we have and. I think there should be a separation between, I mean, of course, like consistency and, you know, trying to to live according to our principles is obviously a very good thing. But when you engage in a purely intellectual activity, such as like philosophy, I think we can transcend that that need for yeah, knowing who the person is and and trying to, I don't know, square what they say with what they are. At least I hope, like, you know, when I write things, I really hope people say, oh, like, she's a woman, and so she's saying this thing because she's a woman. That would really annoy me. Uh, I don't want to write like a woman, whatever that means, or as a woman. I want to write as, as a neutral mind <laughs> arguing things. And my personal experience... Uh, whatever I happen to be shouldn't shouldn't have an influence on that. But I, I know there's a lot of disagreement that should be like uh, I'm, you know, that's an interesting conversation. And, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Um, that's just like how I approach things. I think we tend to overstate like, oh, you're a white man, so you have nothing to say about slavery reparations unless you're supportive. That's okay. That I don't like at all. But I think. It's not a a ridiculous point to say, okay, so you've got this undergraduate student making the case for student debt repayment or something. Well, that's kind of convenient because that's in your interest. And I oppose affirmative action. I've argued against it. We'll continue to argue against it. But people make the point, well, that's easy for you to say. You're not benefiting from it. And uh, you would benefit from the policy you support. So could that be affecting my re- your reasoning. And it could be, you know, so uh, maybe there's some room to say who's making the argument. I don't know. 
Maybe there's some in, indirect evidence there or something. But I think for the most part, for the most part, I think we would be better to put those sorts of considerations out of mind. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm sure that, you know, it is perfectly possible there are some kinds of arguments that, you know, where the argument comes from may make a difference. I would have to think more about it. Um, but, yeah, getting back to the journal, I think that, you know, if these considerations um, are valid, they shouldn't outweigh the need for putting out there some arguments that wouldn't have they wouldn't have a place otherwise you know if 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 student pseudonymous publications were an option i agree with you i agree with you there do you get the sense sometimes people will say that they'll write something and they'll get private emails of support but people will be more afraid to speak out about it like in front of other people and I'm wondering if you had a sense that there's anything like that going on, that you're getting more support on the DL than like publicly. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I think that's the case. And I think it was the case also when I got in trouble in 2012, like uh, I got mm, more, I mean, I get, I got more email support. I mean, not compared to the, <laughs> absolute uh in absolute terms because like the comments and the hate emails there were hundreds uh but um you know i guess it's important to know that for people who find themselves in that situation which is uh quite overwhelming in some moments that you know there are people who support them you know there might be a minority there might be a small percentage but there is somebody and that's why i always try to email people who get in trouble um uh, you know I just send an email saying, yeah, I know you're going through this. I've been there. It seems horrible right now, but it will get better. Because in those moments, it really feels like everybody hates you and you're completely alone. And it's, and you know, it can be overwhelming. So, yeah, please send emails <laughs> of support to people you want to support because very often these people just get a lot of, very angry messages or like Twitter. Twitter is terrible for this, but that's how human minds work. Like, you know, you don't leave a good review of something you like on Amazon very often. You often write to complain about something or the thing about the thing that, you know, you, you bought on Amazon and you didn't like and didn't work. So we tend to be more vocal about things we don't like and to be less vocal about things we agree and like. And, but sometimes I guess we should make a conscious effort of, yeah, yeah. Just supporting people we agree with, uh, especially when, when they're isolated and, and, and they feel like everybody's against them. That's a good thought. That's a good thought. Oh, I was also going to say the paper, it won't be, be the most controversial in the in the uh, issue because we're silly. But if people were really concerned about the possibility of negative consequences, the paper proposing um, reversible comas as, as an alternative to punishment would scare people the most because it's conceivable that some government would take that up as a policy, and. Um, it strikes a lot of people as repugnant, it strikes me as repugnant, but then you think about actually the actual prison system and maybe it's not more repugnant than that. 
but it's just like, uh, that's just not the kind of thing that gets people really, really upset so much, you know? Strangely. Yeah. <laughs> Strangely not. Um, and yeah, I think they're like a lot of interesting conversation we should have about, uh, prisons and punishment and, you know, whether it should be abolished completely or like changed in some way, what happens in prisons. And uh, this is, you know, these things have, have a lot of impact on a lot of people's lives. And, um, and I hope there will be like comments. Uh, we invite people to write replies to some articles if, if they want to. So hopefully this has opened up some interesting conversation about those topics, which, yeah, as you say, they could have massive impact. I'm going to add a little. All right. Well, thank you so much. I, uh, I appreciate your coming on and talking to me about this on such incredibly short notice. So I agree with. (laughs) Thank you for inviting me. What Francesca said about the need to support those we agree with when they come under fire. But I would also like to add, and I think she would agree with me here that we should support even those we disagree with when they are being maligned unfairly or when we think that they're being maligned unfairly. Um, so that's one thing I wanted to say. The other thing is I, I made a misstatement. I said that the article, The Punishment in the Body, this is by Christopher Bellshop, proposes reversible comas as an alternative to punishment, but I meant to say an alternative form of punishment. So... The idea is that this would be a replacement for prison time in particular, and maybe in some cases the death penalty. All right, and now I wanted to say more about the really hot topic, you know, the third rail, the racial differences stuff that we were talking about earlier, though I'm not going to have a position on the causes of this, but about the debate. It's like a meta position that I, I want to say something about. And I return to this not because I am really super interested in race and racial differences and stuff. Uh, I'm not, but because this is the issue that keeps being brought up in conversations as an example of something that is just too dangerous to talk about. And so I want to respond to that because I think this is where the case for censorship is more likely to be made. So I just don't see the case for thinking that the idea that there are genetic bases for some racial differences is so much more dangerous than other ideas. I don't see any rational basis for the level of concern that there is around this. Now, it's true that uh, views about, you know, racial differences, like, could promote negative stereotypes against marginalized groups, which would be bad and could give support to some really bad elements, some, you know, hardcore racists and people like that. And I grant that that's bad. What I don't see is why that would be so much worse than other forms of harm. Raising the minimum wage too high would also hurt marginalized groups by causing unemployment, but there's there's no sort of protective instinct towards marginalized groups that's nearly as strong when it comes to things like that. I think also few people, if anyone, I mean, assuming that the environmentalists are correct and that all 
group disparities can be ultimately explained in terms of environmental factors, like social factors. I certainly don't think that's true about sex differences. With race differences, it could be true. I don't know. But I think even if it's true, there are just not going to be that many people who are in a position to know that. It's kind of a technical, difficult topic, right? The causes of, of group differences. And, and so I don't think most people are in a position to be like 100% sure that all racial disparities are environmentally caused. But it seems to be that the people who call themselves anti-racist will not tolerate even suspended judgment on this issue. You have to be committed to the view that social causes, and not only that, a particular kind of social cause, institutionalized or systemic racism, is responsible for all sorts of disparities. And it just seems to me that even if that's true, which I doubt, that particular version of environmentalism, I doubt that's true. I just don't see how anyone could be in a position to know that, except possibly a few experts. And it's not like nothing bad has ever been done in the name of egalitarian ideas. I know some people are going to say it wasn't real communism, but look at the French Revolution and the terror. That was A, a bad thing, and B, something that was motivated by egalitarian ideas. And so I think it's hard for people to make the case that there's some unique danger about promoting the wrong idea about racial differences, even if they're right that these are bad ideas about racial differences. And people just seem to have this idea that accepting that there are any kind of genetic explanations for group differences would just completely vindicate the Ku Klux Klan or something like that. And I think this is wrong and it's dangerous because if it turns out that someone or some scientist proves that there are some group differences that are based in genetics of a kind that might trouble us, that allows Ku Klux Klan type people to just claim that they've been vindicated by science because that's what their opponents had been saying all along. I just think this is really foolish. And we just don't need to be that afraid of this because just think there's a limit to what the science could possibly tell us. And we know that nothing that psychologists are going to say conceivably is going to show that the history of how black people were treated in the United States was morally acceptable. We already know that's not true. So I just wish people would chill out. I don't think that there is any special reason to suppress research in this case, and I don't think that there is in any others. And I, I think that we've got much more to fear from the impulse to suppress wrong think, even when we're talking about ideas that are actually objectively mistaken, than we have to fear from any of those ideas.